Start with a question. Have you ever been called a radical? How many of you have been called a radical? <laughs> we'll hope it was for your faith, okay? So the rest of you have never been called a radical. Well, that makes my request to the Lord even more important. I want to pastor a church filled with radical people. I want to be a radical pastor. I believe the body of Christ is called to be radical. Now, when I say that, we need to make sure we are careful of how we define it. And I just want to define it really quickly. Uh, is this, and we'll look at it in a little more detail, but I'm going to define it first by saying what it's not. Radical is not stupid, okay? And radical isn't militant. We'll talk about what it is in just a little while, but the title of the message is simply Radical Living. And I believe with all my heart that the Bible tells us we need to be radical Christians. We need to be radical about our faith. You know, we live in a culture, really, that's all about me. All about me. You know, what has the world got for me? Matter of fact, what do you got for me? It's a very selfish culture. It's a culture where truth is very subjective. What do I mean by that? Well, truth is whatever I want it to be. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Very subjective truth. You know, it's a culture that's really interesting in this regard to me. It's a culture which proclaims that they're very tolerant. They're very diverse. Almost prideful in being non-conforming. And yet the reality is this. If you're a Christian and you, you espouse Christian ideas or Christian principles or you live in a lifestyle that God would be honored by as a Christian, we get, a, we get accused of being all kinds of things by those who espouse tolerance, diversity, and nonconformism because we don't conform to what they want us to be. The culture that we live in is, is amazing to me in this regard. And that's the fruit of our culture. I think if anybody is honest, and matter of fact, you could look at all kinds of statistics that I believe would bear out what I'm going to say the fruit of our culture is. I believe the fruit of our culture is hopelessness, anxiety, depression, selfishness, loneliness, brokenness, and fear. And you could add a whole lot of things to that list. When I say look at statistics, just look at the statistics about the prison capacity in this country. Look at the statistics on the sales of mind-altering medications that are prescribed. Try and get a room in a treatment center for drugs or alcohol. Try and get a bed in the health, behavioral health ward floors in a hospital. Everything's full. Why? Because our culture is bearing horrible fruit. And when we, we don't conform to the culture, we're the ones that are attacked and mocked and ridiculed. And I'm beginning to think if I'm not attacked, mocked, and ridiculed, I'm probably not living a very radical lifestyle for Christ. I do not want to conform to the culture. You know, we're mandated from God not to conform to the culture. It's not a suggestion that God says, you know, I think you'll be better off if you don't conform to the culture. 
He says, be transformed. Do not conform to the culture of the world. It's a command. Why? Because he knows what the fruit of our culture is. He knows who the prince of this culture is. And he doesn't want us to have any part of it. When we live in a biblical way, radically, the world is going to call us all kinds of things, and one of them might be radical. But I want to make sure we understand radical. But I want to start in Romans chapter 12. Now, I preached a sermon a year ago, almost exactly, on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read those verses, but I'm not really going to focus on those. I want to focus on the how-to of what the command is. You know, sometimes it, you read something, you go, yes. And then I always want to know, well, what's it look like for me? How do I make that real in my life? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I'm going to read it from two different translations. First, I'm going to read it from the New American Standard, which says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, perfect, acceptable. I want to read it in the New Living Translation. Not terribly different, but it does bring out a few points that I wanted to stress. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly, truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Then you will get, begin to know. Then you will know when, after you've been transformed and you've surrendered, then you'll know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. I want to define these words, and I think we probably have a pretty good understanding, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. To conform. What does it mean to conform? Well, Webster says some things like this. To act in accordance or harmony with to comply with prevailing standards, attitudes, and practices of a society, a culture, or a group. To be or become similar in form, nature, or character. In other words, to fit in. God is saying, do not fit in. You'll be in the world, you'll live in the world, but don't fit in, don't look like them. If the world sees you an outcast, you're on the right track. You don't have to be weird, stupid, or foolish to be considered an outcast. That's not why we want to be known as outcasts. We do not want to conform, fit in, look like the world, take on the form or the nature of the character of the world. A nonconformist was defined this way, a person who refused to conform, well, we get that, to establish customs, attitudes, or principles. Sometimes we confuse nonconformist with rebellion. And you might get accused of being a rebel if you're radical. But I want to just offer this to you, and you can pray about it, because I don't believe we're supposed to be rebellious. But I believe rebellion is against anything that God stands for. 
I am not going to conform to what the world wants and let them call me rebellious if I'm standing for what God wants. It's godliness, holiness, righteousness, truth. I don't believe that's rebellion. I believe that is living a radical life for Christ. We don't want to get rebellious. Radical. As you look it up, it can be all kinds of um, different things. Cindy was trying to educate me in my English grammar. She failed. Not her fault. The student. Noun, adverb. What are the other things? Predicate noun. See, I'm not going to conform to the world's way of defining those. <laughs> those my English teacher's fault. But I want to look at it as a noun. I want to be a radical. I don't want to act radical. I want to be a radical. What does that mean? I be, the dictionary says this. When it's looked at as a noun, a person who holds on or follows strong convictions, extreme principles, can be called an extremist. We are to be extremists. The world is defining extremism. The world is defining radical. Us right-wing, radical, extremist, conservative morons. Because you've got to be an idiot to think like we think. You know, so be it. Radical will cause those that are conforming to the world to think that way about us. We're to be radical nonconformists. I'm convinced it's biblical. But the question is, what's it look like when I live it out? It's nice for me to say I want to be a radical pastor. And I truly want to pastor a radical church. What's it look like? Well, I don't think Paul leaves us hanging after verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 of Romans. And sometimes it's good to remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to Rome. Rome Rome in that time, they thought they were pretty much all it. They were the power, pride, all that stuff. Everything about Rome is Rome. You know, it's great. That's who he's talking to. And he's saying, you know what? You've got to be transformed. And it's interesting, when you go back and look at 1 and 2, it's transformed. First of all, offer your body as a sacrifice. Be transformed in your mind and know the will of the Lord. He deals with body, mind, our will. And then he says, then you'll know, once you've surrendered all that, you'll know the will of the Lord. How many of you want to know the will of the Lord for your life? Good. How many of you have fully surrendered to God? I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that question. But I know that that's a good way to learn the will of the Lord. To be fully surrendered to Him. So I believe Paul gives us in verses 3 through 11 at least five. I just picked five points. And you could go on beyond verse 11. Of what it should look like if we have a transformed mind. If we have a new way of thinking about a culture and about ourselves. The first one is simply this. A transformed mind has a right estimate of yourself. A right estimate of yourself. In verse 3 of Romans 12, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, hindrances in serving God is thinking way too highly of ourselves which is a kind way of saying pride. 
major hindrance to serving God is our own pride. Surrendering our will to God's will. You know, really, until we do that, surrender our will to God's will, we'll never know what the will of God is for our life. Until I surrender. Does anybody ever act like I act, or at least I'm told I act this way, by wise people in my family? I know everything. I'm always right. This is time for amens. Okay. Always right. Reminds me of a guy who's driving home from work on a four-lane freeway. And the phone rings because his wife is at home watching the news and she sees on the news that there's some lunatic driving the wrong way on a four-lane freeway and she knows her husband is coming home on that freeway. So she calls her husband and says, Honey, be careful. There's some lunatic driving the wrong way on the freeway. He says, No, that's wrong, honey. There's over hundreds of them coming the wrong way on the freeway. <laughs> okay, do all of you get it yet? Okay. We're like that. How many of you know better than God? Yeah, raise your hand. There's at least one honest man in the room. Because we act like we know better than God all the time or we wouldn't sin, right? We know the will of God. I want the will of God. Well, when we want the will of God, we're thinking way too highly of ourselves because we think we know what it's supposed to look like, how it should happen. You know, when we focus on God's will for me, you know what we focus on, or at least I can tend to focus on? The what of God's will, the when of God's will, and the where of God's will. God, I want to know what I'm going to be doing when and where it's going to happen. Anybody else look for God's will that way? I am convinced that's not God's primary concern when he's trying to teach us his will. I believe his will is that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Whenever it happens, however it happens, wherever it happens, and whatever it takes to happen. That's what he's concerned about. Am I being transformed into the image of Christ? We can get awfully prideful. It's a human, old, self thing. Especially if God uses us. But we need to remind ourselves, God only uses us simply because he wants to. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, not even because we want to. He will use us because he wants to. It's by grace that he does that. It's interesting in that verse in chapter 3, my translation, the New American says, to think as to have sound judgment. That word in the Greek means sanity. In other words, think sanely, will you? Think sanely. Think sanely about who you really are. Now, we don't want to flip all the way over from here being thinking too highly of ourselves all over, way over here to think that we're some kind of low-life loser. We need to have humility, godly humility. And what that simply, I define it as this, knowing who I am in Christ. If I know who I am in Christ, I'm not going to think too highly of myself. But if I know who I am in Christ, I am no life scum of the earth. I'm a child of God, created in his image. And I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And I could go on and on. But if I get back over here and I look at God, and then I look at me, I go, oh God, I can't believe you can do anything with this mess. That humility of knowing who we are in Christ. Paul says, a transformed mind 
will have a right estimation of who we are. The second point in verses 4 and 5. A transformed mind will exhibit unity in the midst of diversity. You know, just look around the room for a second. Who looks just like you? Now, if you've got a son or daughter that's... I'm sorry, Ethan. You look just like me. (laughs) None of us look exactly alike. And that's just an outside snapshot. Now, if we could look inside and see the workings of our mind, what's in our soul, what's in our heart, we're nothing alike. We all do different kinds of work. We all have the great diversity. And yet, unity. With a transformed mind, we come together as one in unity. Everybody has a function in this place. You have a function. If God has called you to be a part of Victory Church, this church that He's established here, you have a function. Now, every now and then I've got to be careful. Sarcasm creeps out. But, your function, I am relatively certain, is not to hold the chair you're sitting in to the floor. It goes way beyond that. You know how I know that? I come in here when the room is empty and all the chairs are attached to the floor. So I know that's not your function. We have to have the whole body functioning or it doesn't work. I have a picture up here of a car. Well, sort of a picture of a car. Now, I'd rattle off a whole lot of parts of the car, but once I get past door and fender, I don't know anything. But if you look at that picture, that's a car. Now you could say, boy, that's a whole bunch of parts of a car. Well, that's like us. We're all those parts of the car. Now, if they're all laying there, that car isn't going anywhere. And if we don't function properly, it still won't work quite white. Put the second picture up. I'd hate to think that's a picture of us as a church. You know, this will sound horrible, but there are some churches belong in that blue thing. I trust we're not one of them. But no matter what we do, if we're not all functioning together in unity, using the gifts and talents that God has, we're not working. We've been designed to look like this other car. I want one of those. But that's what I want our church to look like. I want this church to be a radical church that is firing on every single cylinder, that every single person in here has this attitude, I am going to live radically for Christ. Why? So I get some glory? Heck no. You don't want the glory. I don't want the glory. We want God to get the glory. And if we're really really living radical lives for Christ, he will. Because we already have a right estimation of who we are. And we're coming together in unity. You know, each one of us has been very uniquely designed, but we've also been made to function in community. God didn't design a bunch of lone rangers. He gave us gifts, designed you uniquely, like this complicated car and all the parts fit together and it runs perfectly. Accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. We have to stop thinking individually all the time. What's the purpose for me, God, in this church to build your kingdom? It goes so much beyond me. 
The world thinks that way. What about me? We need to think about what about us? What about the kingdom of God? What can I bring to Victory Church to make this church more a radical church doing good things for the kingdom of God that bear good fruit? We need to start looking at ourselves that way instead of, well, I'm all it, or on the other side, I got nothing to offer. I come to the table empty. We all have something to offer. God has deposited in every single one of us to be used in its unique way as it might be to build this body, to make this body function better so we can impact the kingdom that we're located in here in our community in southwestern Minnesota. Unity. The third one, verses 6 through 8. A transformed mind is completely engaged in service. Goes so well with the unity thing. In verse 6 it says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Each of us is to exercise them. Each of us. You ever get a gift and it's so nice you don't ever want to use it? So you leave it in the box and you put it in the closet and keep it hidden. Some of us act that way with the gifts God's given us. We take that gift and, and we, we, you know what? It takes some faith to operate in God's gifts. So instead of doing that, we put it in a box and put it over here and just keep it. We are to be exercising them. If it's prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service in his serving or teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And that's not an all-inclusive gift of the Spirit, but that gives us an idea. Whatever it is, we're supposed to be using them. And when we do, there's some amazing benefits to using your gifts. First benefit I want to mention to using your gift is simply fruitfulness. When we start using our gifts, they will bear good fruit. Who the, their gifts from God to, decide, to, to impact and influence and develop the kingdom of God. Fruitfulness. You know what? And when we're fruitful, doesn't it bring fulfillment? When you use your gifts, it's a fulfilling thing. Personally and corporately, it's fulfilling. It feels good. God has given us good gifts. Every good thing comes from Him. When used properly, good fruit, good feelings. When we bless God, He blesses us. And thirdly, it builds up the church. It builds up the church when we use our gifts. You know, the enemy wants to keep you, or me, either in a state of fear or this pity party or this place of feeling worthless and useless so that we don't use our gifts. He wants you to be miserable and he wants the church to not function the way it should. That's not God's plan. He wants to build up the body. When we use those gifts, it bears good fruit and we feel good about it. And the fourth one, a transformed mind will love sincerely or with sincerity. This is, these things that I'm listing are all just byproducts, the fruit of a transformed mind. 
it will translate into a transformed life. And this is what it looks like. And here's one of the, the critical ones. Without love, all the other stuff just is fluff that doesn't do much. Verses 9 and 10, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And give preference to one another. A transformed mind. If our mind is being transformed... It's being renewed by the Word of God. If we are being transformed into more of a Christ-likeness, love is going to flow from us. Not hypocritical love. Not selfish love. Not this kind of love that that we put out there that's sort of phony because really we're just pretending we love somebody to get what we need or want. Love is not to be hypocritical. Not disguised. Real. How many of you know a phony when you see one? How many of you want to be one? We don't. Real love comes out of a transformed mind. You know, and it's interesting when you look at that. It starts out, be love. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then it sticks in there, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then it goes back to brotherly love again. Giving preference to one another. I think sometimes we take that abhor evil and, and embrace what is good and we maybe take it a little bit too far out of context. If it's in this verse that's got love in the beginning and love at the end and something in the middle, I think the evil we're to abhor is treating people badly. Treating them in an ungodly way. And grab a hold, adhere to what is good. Let's treat them right. Let's love them rightly. I guarantee you, if we embrace radical living like this, if we radically love people like Christ loves people, people will be drawn to the kingdom of God. Guarantee it. They want, the world wants love so bad because the world's so empty. They're out there trying to fill it with all this stuff, all this junk. None of it satisfies, first of all. And most of it bears bad fruit. They want love. They just want to be loved. That's all they're looking for. To be loved without hypocrisy. No phony love. <clears throat> when I meet with couples that might be having a difficult time in their relationship, I always, oftentimes leave them with this challenge before they leave. And I always give them a guarantee. Now, wouldn't you love to go to a counselor that can guarantee you something? This is about the only one I can make. <laughs> go home and out honor one another for a week. If you always got to win, if you always are going to be competing, if you always got to be right, go home and win this contest. Out honor the other person. A transformed mind, a transformed life is to esteem others more important than ourselves, to show honor to others. And the fifth point that I believe we can grab, and I said there's many more you can go on to, but a transformed mind is one that is energized to serve God. Radical Christians, radical church, 
radical pastor is going to be energized wanting to serve the Lord. Verse 11. Not lagging behind. In diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving God. Don't be lazy. Be diligent. Lord, what is it you would like me to do now? What can I do next? That doesn't mean you burn out. Transform living won't let you do that. But... We're not lazy. We're not slothful. And he uses that word fervent. Be fervent in spirit. The word fervent in the Greek usually is used in reference to something that is boiling, like water or boiling oil. You know, the bubbles are coming to the surface. It's like all this energy is in there trying to get out. And he's just saying, be fervent in your spirit. It should just be boiling inside. How can I release this? God, what do you want me to do by your spirit? And then it says... Serving the Lord. And that word serving implies to serve as a slave. Obedient to the Lord. Obedient is part of the definition of that word. Serve the Lord. Be obedient to the Lord. A a transformed mind will want to be obedient to God. We're not going to want to get as close to disobedience as we can get. We're not going to be wanting to get as close to sin as we can get. We aren't going to want to, to try to conform as close as we can to the world, but still be different so we can say we're non-conforming. We're not, we're to want nothing to do with that stuff. Run as far from it as you can. Be energized, diligent, fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. Now, when you look at those five points, and I hope they're way more than just points, what they are, I believe, that Paul is saying, you know, be a living sacrifice. Lay down your bodies as a living sacrifice. Renew your mind. Be transformed by the Word of God, renewing of your mind. That you would lay your will aside and know what my will is for you. And he says, if that happens, your life's going to look like this, these, these points that I've been mentioning. And when we do, I hope you can see the type of a, a transformed mind that, that like this would lead to this type of non-conforming life. When you look at, look at this slide, the next slide, I believe. When we look at our prevailing culture, pride, pride, and then more pride. A transformed mind is Humility. Knowing who I am in Christ. Having a right estimation of who we are. Independent, self-focused. The culture, number one. Look out for, number one. Dependent. In unity. World is selfish. That whole what's in it for me. And you can see how they build on one another. Pride, independence, selfishness. It's all that snare of the world system. The enemy system. Instead of what's in it for me, it's how can I serve? You know, and this one really gets challenging. I mean, I've shared this before, but I remember it was a long time ago. Ken Lundin was still the pastor. 
And at that time, I had a huge idol in my life. Now I just got a whole bunch of little ones <laughs> that we're dealing with. But when it was NCAA basketball tournament time, don't bother me. So here it is. Semi-final night. The top four teams are left. They do it. I mean, I've got a bowl of popcorn this big, two pounds of butter, Diet Pepsi coming out. It's like a river. <sighs> Bob used to call me just when the games would come on just to see if I'd answer. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> you know, and I was just kind of getting into this thing of, okay, loving the Lord, can you, you know, you know, train me, use me, show me, and the phone rings. Dr. Arnie Fredericks had called Ken Lundeen about some people over by Pipestone, between Pipestone and Fandro. I've forgiven you, Arnie. <laughs> that I didn't know from Adam. And Ken says, Mike, you doing anything? Well, duh, isn't everybody? <laughs> Games are starting. And he says, uh, we need to go pray for this guy. Arnie just called and were, the, was, were Jeff and Renee married yet? It was their son-in-law's dad was sick and ill. We need to go over there and pray. And I'm looking at you. Oh, jeez, are you kidding me? I love you, Jesus, but not as much as this. And I don't love them at all because I don't know them. And right now I'm mad at Arnie and Ken. The spirit of guilt came on me. Okay, what time? Right away. Oh, jeez. We're going to miss them all. We didn't have DVRs back then. We barely had color TV. <laughs> so he comes and picks me up, and we go pick up Arnie, and then we drive over to Pipestone, and then we head towards Flandreau, and I'm thinking, we're never going to get back in time. And here's a guy who's sick unto death. And I didn't want to go. We went. We prayed, and it was great. Had a great time. But when we decide to serve the Lord with a renewed mind, those things are going to present themselves often. Often. Your phone is going to ring at the absolute worst time. Somebody's going to knock on your door at the absolute worst moment. Someone's going to come and want something out of need, and you're, you're almost in lack yourself. And God's just going to see where our hearts really are. Do we really want to serve him? Or are we more like the world? Man, I was so, I was so, ugh. And then the Vikings were good. You know, I had a long list. Basically, don't call me ever. Isn't it ugly? I mean, God, and those were the good old days. She. The world, shallow, phony, and hypocritical. The world is looking for real people. People who are sincere. People that will honor others. People who will esteem others higher and better than themselves. There are people walking around every day, wherever you are, that feel like crap, and that's how they think of themselves. Sorry. That's not on the list. 
Okay, good. I can say crap. <laughs> they got a list. I tell you what, you want to touch their hearts and get their attention? Pay attention to them. Compliment them. Say something good about them. Oh man, they're just starving for that. The world's not doing that. The world's putting them down. And if the world does say something nice to them, they're picking their pocket at the same time because they want something from them. A different life, a radical life, a radical way of living is so contrary to the world. It's so non-conforming. Rebellious towards God. And a, and a, a renewed life is fervently following God, seeking God. So you can see why when I say, a, 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 who doesn't want to be radical now? Don't raise your hands. I'll be really mad. Who doesn't want to be radical? Who doesn't want to be part of a radical church? Who doesn't want to live a life that's radical the way God calls it radical? Different, non-conforming to the things of the world. I think most of us do. You know, if these are our convictions, if these are our principles, this, this is what we really believe is true, you and I are radicals. The world will see us as that. You know, wouldn't it be great? Go ahead and put the Acts 17 verse up. Did I put that on there? Yes, I did? Good. Wouldn't it be great as this is what they said about us? The disciples were traveling from place to place. And there's this group of people really ticked off and they're running around looking for them. They couldn't find the ones they wanted so they just arrested a couple of smaller named disciples. And then they went running and they said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. We can turn our world upside down where God has got us planted. Our communities, our families, we can make a difference. A radical church living a transformed lifestyle can turn the world upside down. I'd love that to be the accusation that they throw at us when they're angry. You guys are turning the world upside down. Praise God the world needs to be turned upside down. Turn on the news. Listen to our politicians. The things that are out there are insane. The last slide, I think. The world's lacking hope. We not only have hope, we know who hope is. The world is lacking peace. We know the Prince of Peace is lacking joy. The Lord, the joy of the Lord living in us. We have the joy. We know where the joy can be found. It's lacking love. We have, we have love living and dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let it fill us and flow out of us. The world is lacking compassion, mercy, grace, we know the giver of all those things. They have no Jesus, and we know Jesus. As a church, a radical church living radical lives, we are called to share the Jesus that we know with the world that doesn't know him. And we sometimes get in our head that it's hard and impossible. We're afraid, we don't know scripture well enough, we did, blah, blah, whatever. You know what? Can you share any of those things that the world's lacking with someone? And when you do, they're going to notice. I mean, how, how hard of evangelism is that? If, 
someone says, how come you always seem so joyful? Oh, God, let me tell you. I have the joy of the Lord in me. I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Can I tell you about him? I mean, it just flow out of you naturally. You always seem to be so kind to people. How come? Oh, because God in his mercy exhibited kindness to me like you can't imagine by saving me when I was going to hell. I mean, sharing the love of Jesus is not that hard if it's part of our mind, if it's the way we think, if that's our purpose in life, is to increase the kingdom, share the love of the Lord with people. And you will be accused of being radical. Don't go talk to Mike. All they'll talk about is Jesus. Don't talk to so-and-so. No matter what you ask them about, they're going to bring Jesus into it. Well, seriously, we're supposed to. We're supposed to live our lives to the glory of God. And as a radical church, as radical believers living a radical lifestyle, it'll be as natural as breathing when we've truly surrendered our will to His will. But surrender always requires sacrifice. That's why it's not that much fun to our flesh. But it'll be health to our spirit, health to our soul. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you and praise you for all of the love, joy, hope, mercy, compassion that you give us. God, that we are so undeserving, yet you have chosen to rescue us, to save us. You have given us life everlasting. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will reveal those areas of our lives that we have not yet surrendered to you. That we would see those things as the idols that they really are. And by your grace, we would be able to kick them down and destroy them. And surrender ourselves to you. God, the cross is the great equalizer. God, we all come to you as sinners needing forgiveness. And your word says you love the world. That includes us. Lord, I pray that we would truly be a church, a people, individuals that live radical lives for your glory. Lord, I pray for opportunities this week for each one of us to step out by faith in ways we maybe have never done before to see if we can't dispense your love, your joy, your peace, your hope, your compassion, your mercy, your grace to those that are starving for it. And that we might share the source of all of those things in our lives. God, we pray all these things that you would receive all the glory, all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.